Welcome to Conversations with Future Generation. I'm Louise Walsh, CEO of the impact investing companies Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. In this series, we explore the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health, and supporting children and youth at risk with amazing Australians who are leading the way. Joining us today is Mark Nelson. Mark is the chairman and co-founder at Caledonia, one of Future Generation Global's pro bono fund managers. He's also a director of the Caledonia Foundation. He's a trustee of the Sydney Swans Foundation and a governor of the Flory Neuroscience Institutes. And his passion for art is reflected in his position as director of Art Exhibitions Australia and also a director of Caldor Public Art Projects. Prior to entering the financial sector, Mark studied neuropharmacology at the University of Melbourne. Mark, it's an absolute delight to have you here with me this morning. Happy to be here, Luke. Well, look, just to kick things off, I mean, I think with you firstly, I mean, it's fascinating that you studied neuropharmacology, receiving your PhD in 1986. I mean, what is that exactly? And by the way, should I be calling you doctor? That's right. That's no, a very, very good question. So, I mean, it's um, well, obviously, well, not obviously, but neuropharmacology, I suppose, really deals with the um, the, the drugs, if you like, or the substances and, and the pathways of the brain. In my case, it was more to do with high blood pressure, hypertension. So that's what I studied. But um, really, I was, I was interested in science generally, and um, it goes back a fair way. My father um, actually was an historian, and so he at home he taught me history and, and literature and things like that. But he had no idea, knew nothing about maths and and sciences, and so he sort of said that he suggested I study those to be, as he said, a well-rounded man. You know, so I thought, oh yeah, why not? So I did. So I studied those and found I quite liked them, having already done the other stuff. Um, and that was where, where it really got to. And you can call me Doctor Nelson if you like. People, funny enough, when you are in the investment world and, you, and you're called Doctor something, everyone thinks you must be an economist. So it's great. They they ask <laughs> me things about, about what I think about interest rates. So I've got no idea, but I pretend. It's all good. <laughs> So you're obviously your father was a, a big influence there by the sound of that. I mean, he's, you know, I'm assuming an incredible man that's inspired you quite a bit. You know, he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot, as I said, particularly in the areas that he knew, which was to do with um, with, with history, literature, geography, et cetera. That was his sort of sort of specialty, um, really, mm. which was great. But the science was just something I, I sort of I liked as well. And why then did you pivot your career into finance? I mean, what fascinated you about that to make you to make the change yeah well, the ultimate ultimately became a bit of an accident but it, but it wasn't initially it was sort of quite deliberate because what i thought um at that stage we're talking about the mid 80s you know after i finished my phd and really the, the role for scientists then was very much one of um you know the public service there wasn't much of a sort of commercial outlet for science in australia really um you didn't have sort of this plethora of startups or and certainly from, from my studies, the pharmaceutical industry sort of interested me. So I had this idea, because you're bulletproof at that age, you know what you like. And I thought, well, I wouldn't mind having my own pharmaceutical business. That would be great. But to do that, you needed some some understanding of business, some capital as well, you know, all that sort of experience. And I thought, well, I don't want to do an MBA. I've just done nine years at university. It's the last thing I need. So I thought, get some practical experience. And the stock market had always fascinated me anyway. So that just as you, as you do at that age, you, you said you're bulletproof. I said, well, I'll go and work for a a large American you know, investment bank, that'll work. Um, they need me. Is This is how you're thinking, of course. And you know, it's just stupid. In hindsight, it's ridiculous. But um, the only one that in Australia at that time that really was doing everything, I'm talking about you know, equities, um, you know, investment banking, um, fixed interest bonds a lot, was Prue Beige, Prudential Beige. Uh, other firms didn't have that. So they were in, I was in Melbourne and they were in Melbourne. 
So I went and saw the the chairman, who was a, a great man called John Kelvert Jones, um, uh, and John's terrific, and he you know very bravely took me on. Um, I sort of convinced him I was very cheap and worth worth hiring, and he did. I mean, these days you just wouldn't get away with that. Um, you would need a, you know, a myriad of psych tests and, and qualifications. Of course, I had zero qualifications in the financial world, just an interest, but but I was numerous, and um, and I convinced him that that. Um, um, he needed to to hire me to look at biotech stocks, to look at you know the healthcare stocks, which he did. So anyway, so I I started that, and and I'm forever grateful to John, you know, for having done that. Um, uh, really got me on on the road. So as it turns out, I, I kept my head down for for a while and 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 learned everything I could, and um, luckily found you know, I wasn't bad at the analysis, and um, and it went from there. So I did it for five years um, on the so-called sell side. Um, with them um, before I felt brave enough. Well, I'd always wanted to actually, you know, to do the other side, which was do the investment side rather than actually just do the analysis and flog the investment. I wanted to actually make the investment. And um, fortunately, one of my fellow analysts was Ian Darling, um, who was down there at Melbourne with me. And Ian and I sort of hatched a plan that we'd like to do our own fund. And that's where it sort of started. Mm, um, really. oh, fascinating because, you know, it's interesting um, I'm a big fan of John Calvert Jones, and um, it's it, I've sort of got to know him through Future Generation Global, and and what he's done in the sailing world is is quite incredible. Um, but it's of course there's a link there with Jeff Wilson as well because he he employed I think he employed uh, John employed Jeff as well. So um, that's, that's he did. Jeff and I overlapped. Jeff and I overlapped by about a year uh, at probation. I was in Melbourne though. Jeff was up in the Sydney office. Uh, up here but we yeah we did we overlapped um yeah about really one to two years that's right exactly and and then i left um that side to set up the fund before jeff did jeff did his a couple of years afterwards which was great but so ian ian um and i should mention Ian now ian's been an unbelievable um influence um and and friend and, and colleague for me um and you know I, I suppose that we could all reflect on this sort of stuff it's it's good to be good it's great to be lucky you know, and I've been very lucky in, in terms of being in the right place, right time. So the fact that John Calvert Jones took a chance on me, and then the fact that Ian Darling was there as an analyst uh, at the same time as me, mm. uh, and then we both convinced, um, we managed to then convince Ian's cousin, Michael Darling, mm. um, who um, who sort of was half a generation older than us, but but you know we we were enormously in awe of Michael, and um, convinced him that he needed to uh, support us or at least back us to start this. This venture, which we um, which we did, and then he um, he said, "Well, yeah, I, I will do that, but you probably need to move to Sydney to be near me." And so we did. So we moved up here. Yeah. Um, we were young and um, and had sort of very little, um, well, quite mobile, I should say. So not that many commitments. So we set the business up um, up here in Sydney. And there were only really there were ten people whose interests were served by the company flight. Nine of whom were darlings and me, <laughs> just, the, just the tenants. And the, the darling contribution was a bit bigger than the Nelson contribution. <laughs> but anyway, still, that was where it was. And so for five years, that's really the only people who were served by this company were us. We did it for ourselves before we felt brave enough after five years to um, to sort of offer the services to outside outside people, mm. you know, take out take outside money. And at that stage, that coincided that stage with um, with Will Vickers joining us. Wilbur joined us um, after five years um, to start the. You know, to help continue the, the, the whole move, but it really was a it was a you know pretty exciting times. Um, and again, being quite lucky, if I could, if I might say, we, at the time we did it, we started in nineteen ninety two, mm. and the stock the markets had been pretty pretty crappy for a few years before that. But they're just coming out of it at that stage, and so we we're sort of catching the you know that, that old old sort of um, cliche sort of you know which is that a rising tide lifts all yachts. 
and that was pretty clear in our in our in our case. I mean, I think it looks back at some of the first investments I made, and gee, they were pretty shabby, but they got we got away with them. You know, the market sort of helped over the next five years. We sort of I suppose refined our our process and our style a bit, and that really helped um, helped to do it. So the timing was was excellent, really, when we did it. And what what was the moment when Caledonia became known globally as a truly leader invest investor? I mean, bearing in mind that you started it, I gather, as domestic Aussie equities in 1992. When did you really, you know, hit the, the bigger time? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's a very good point. I mean, and one of the things you want to do is, as any investment investor, and you don't want to think about this too, is you really want to um, have as wide a, a possible mandate or as wide a possible group of stocks or if that's or investment opportunities to select from. Don't limit yourself too much. So because we were quite small at the time we started, we had a limited amount of capital, we were able to invest in, you know, just the Australian market, if you like, was big enough for us. There was a, there were enough things to invest in just in Australia to make it worthwhile. But as we got a bit bigger um, and, our, and our sort of horizons expanded, we needed to actually also expand a bit as well. We really thought rather than just sort of drawing a pie chart up and saying that we now must have some investments in Asia or America or wherever it might be, we thought about what we knew very well here in Australia. And I can get on to that in a second about the, the sort of concentration but we worked out what we knew very well and what we sort of really understood well and then looked around to see if there were parallels or, you know, or similar companies elsewhere in the world and just did a bit of like a step out into those sort of things. And one of the areas that really we got um, sort of religion on pretty early was on demutualizations and privatizations because a lot of those happened in the early 90s, you might remember, in Australia. A lot of it was for sort of balance sheet repair for states or for the country or, or just, just you know, mutuals going becoming um, corporates. And, and really in every case, or well, every case, the exception of maybe, well, AMP is a funny one because that, you know, was the, the, the IPO was a bit strange there. And maybe the second tranche of Telstra didn't work too well either. But apart from that, every other, you know, privatisation and demutualization you made a lot of money on, uh, mainly because you're going from a not-for-profit mentality to a for-profit mentality and, and some other other issues that happened as well. Anyway, the ones that we really liked, we, we got involved with the, um, the, the stock exchanges, the ASX, and the SFE, the Futures Exchange, were the two, you know, they were the first exchanges in the world to demutualise and go public on their own exchange. And we, we became the largest shareholder of the SFE, the Futures Exchange, and did very well out of it. But we really loved that whole sector. And so we looked around the world, and sure enough, um, Australia had been leading this, but all these other exchanges around the world were thinking about doing the same thing. So we, you know, with our knowledge of how they worked, we were able to very fast become shareholders in some of these ones. And so at various stages... We owned big stakes in, in a bunch of these exchanges around the world as they demutualised. And whilst other people in those, in those markets were sort of agonising over whether these things were good deals or not, we sort of very, had very high conviction they were. So in the case of the one that really kicked us off, which was the Chicago Board of Trade, the CBOT, we went in there and actually bought up all the seats just prior to it um, demutualising. Well, not all the seats. I mean, quite a big whack of the seats, though. And, um, and then when it demutualised, we became the largest shareholder of the Board of Trade. And we made a, you know, a, a very good return out of this for us and our clients. And, um, and it got a lot of attention around the world. As, you know, who are these Aussie guys who have, who have suddenly come into our markets over here and, and made money out of it? And that really sort of, I suppose, got people wondering who we were. And, um, mm. and that was probably the start of it. We've since done that in various other step-outs, if you like, as well. You know, the, the classified ads uh, ad companies here in Australia, such as um, you know, realestate.com in particular, um, we parlayed that into looking around the world. We're a very large shareholder of that company here, and we parlayed that into other positions in in, in um, the UK and France, and uh, and then of course 
quite well known now. We are the largest shareholder of a company called Zillow in, in America, which is mm -hmm. which is you know, the equivalent. And that all came about because of our experience back here many years ago. So that was where we probably got, got the attention. And tell us a little bit about your, you know, Caledonia's investment philosophy. I mean, where did you actually also get the confidence to take that approach? Yeah, well, I think there's some... Um, it gets refined over time. There's no doubt about it. But right at the very start, when Ian and I actually started the company, and then Will came in later. But really, the reason we actually even set up Caledonia itself and, and convinced Michael Barling and and his family to come in and back us too, was that we thought there was a, a real need um, for for a style of investing which was more relevant to um, to uh, individuals who who um, were really trying to um, you know. I suppose not just create wealth, but actually hang on to their wealth um, for families for, for generations, etc. And, and it was very much an absolute um, return model as opposed to a, a relative model. And it was also a case of just recognising that you didn't have to invest in anything. So basically, it meant was we had a, a lump of money, and that we would go looking for what we thought were incredibly attractive um, equity investments. And the reason I say equity because of the growth profile of equity is what we like. And if we could find one, we would do it. If we could find one we loved, we'd do a lot of it. And if we could find nothing, we'd do nothing. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be forced to go into something. So, uh, which is unlike, dare I say, a lot of the, 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 the restrictions that a lot of um, institutional investors have is they have to be fully invested at various times, and they have to sort of follow or not stray too far from the benchmark. We had no interest in that. You know, it's an absolute truism for any individual, as you know, that there's no comfort in relative investment. You know, if someone says to you, "Oh, we've done really well. We're only down 15, and the market's down 18," you don't. That's great. You know, I'm down 15. You know, it's not great. And and so um, we, we acted on that right at the start to really seek out, you know, very interesting, very, not just interesting, very attractive uh, investments on a risk-return basis. And then if we really like them, to go very heavily into them. So that morphed over time um, into this, this is what well, I suppose we're well known for now, which is a, you know, a very high conviction uh, investment style, which then lends itself to a very high concentration portfolio. And and we don't you know resolve or get away from that at all. I mean that's a, that's what we do. It means we're going to be quite volatile because, as you know, well, well, whole markets, um, a big move on a whole market might be a couple of percent in a day. An individual stock can have a move of twenty percent, as you know, or more. And so when you've got big positions like that, we our portfolio can swing all over the place. But provided we believe that over the long term, you know, those um, with the research we've done. And our conviction on those investments is enough to to make us to keep holding them. And if they actually go down for no particularly obvious reason, we can buy some more if we can. So, yeah, that's the philosophy. But it hasn't really changed. The execution's the issue too, I suppose, in that, that respect, which we've got better at. Um, and now we actually also do short stocks as well. So there's some balance in there if we need to. Um, and, um, and we're far more... Um, you know, I think far more resilient as a result of that. But but in terms of it's like a personal um, philosophy, which I suppose certainly informed right at the start very much uh, how we do it. And, and and that's that's come over years, many years of sort of thinking, I suppose, and being in the markets and seeing what worked and what didn't work. But a little light bulb goes on after many many years, and I sort of really um, I've distilled the whole thing down to about three three things. I mean, if I talk to to young investors and and um, who are just get starting out and things. I try and tell them what I what I've what I think I've learned, and that doesn't mean they'll follow it or do anything like that. But the the three things that I would say that I've really come to understand or to really think are important in, in equity investment. The first one, if you can do it, is to only only convince or only restrict yourself, if you like, or only concern yourself with investments of absolutely high quality, 
and that's that has many facets to that. But I mean, it has to it has to be, and, and, the, and the quality of the investment is not just the quality of the business; it's the quality of the business you're investing in. But it's also the price you're getting in at, which actually limits your risk, obviously, in terms of um, of what you can do, and hopefully maybe maximise your return. So. So if you can really wait for those high quality ones, if if something is a bit iffy, if you sort of go, oh, not quite sure, don't do it. You know, wait for the ones where you absolutely think it's a no-brainer. You know, you're buying a dollar for fifty cents or something, and it's got growth. They're the ones you're looking for. So if you can have the discipline to only deal in those ones and and wipe the others out of your mind, not even bother with them, that's a great start. Then the second point is to understand those particular investments that I described. They're really rare. They absolutely they just fall off the trees. They're really, yeah. really rare. You don't just find lots of them. Um, mm. You know they don't happen, and it may be you only you mightn't find one for a year or you know six months or more. But that's okay. Just you know have the patience again. You recognise they're rare, so it's not your fault if they're not turning up. It could be all sorts of other issues with overvalued markets or whatever it is. So when you recognise they're rare, that's good. And the third point, which follows on from that again, I suppose, is understanding also you don't need many. If you have if you had two if you had two crackerjack no brainer investment ideas in a year, and that goes with the two you had last year which have compounded, and the two from the year before that which have compounded twice, now you start building up a portfolio that's got incredible um, you know, momentum with it, and because you haven't been selling all the time, you haven't been paying taxes and things. So, so really, um, you know, the, the Buffett Warren Buffett always had a, a great line which gets you know trotted out all the time many years later which was that at the start of an investing career, every investor should have a, he called it a punch card. But by that, he sort of means like a bus ticket you know, with, with only 20 slots on it. And every time you make an investment, it gets punched. You know, the punch card gets punched. And you've only got 20. And once you've got 20 done, you're done. That's it. And his view was that if you, only, if you had that card right at the start and knew you only had 20 goes at it, you'd be very careful. You'd be very cautious about, you know, is this a punch card investment? And, and that might, people go, oh, that's not many. But you think about that. If you had 20 brilliant investment ideas into an investing lifetime, you'd be, you know, you'd, you'd be you'd Bezos, you know, you'd be, you'd be stupid. I mean, the person who invented the post-it note didn't rush out and invent liquid paper the next day, you know, they, they, they had one great idea and, and to think you're going to get, but the way that, you know, the, the investment markets are often with the, with the, all the information that's out there and the, and the fact that, you know, a lot of brokers in particularly you know, in the past particularly have had a, um, a model based on turnover. You know, you'll get you're hit with you know twenty five potentially great ideas a day. Well, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. You know, that's it. So, so understanding that is a big a big thing. And look, uh, what's interesting when you talk through all that is it's all about patience as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, absolutely, you know, absolutely. And we're and we're very lucky that we have had the patience. Well, it's lucky to have the patience. We have the, the structure with sort of committed capital, if you like, and, and our own capital, that we could actually make that decision. Some people, some funds aren't in that, lucky enough to have that position where they might have inflows and outflows and it gets very hard to, to do that. But to have the patience to be or allowed to be able to go through um, those ups and downs, which will inevitably happen, is a great thing and then have to, and then not have to panic and say, I must buy something. You've got to you know, yeah. sit on your hands. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, if you go to a if you go if you go to a um, a restaurant, and look at the menu, and you go through it, and you go, oh, there's nothing really I like, you know, and um, oh that one, I'm allergic to that, and that makes me sick, and I just don't like the taste of that. You don't go, I'll have the one that makes me less vomitous or something. You, you go, you know, you actually go, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. You know, I won't I won't eat or I'll go go to the restaurant or something. You don't do it exactly. But but if you're served up, you know, half a dozen investments like opportunities, you don't like any of them. Don't do them. <laughs> Don't say I'll take the one that will lose me the least. That's just sort of a dumb way to do it. No, no. Well, look, I mean, you've had phenomenal returns over the last, what, 
20, 20 years. I mean, at future generations. 20, 29. Yeah. We've been going since 92. No, we haven't been for long years. <laughs> but, but no, we've been going a long time. Yeah. But at, at Future Generation Global, I mean, we're absolutely delighted to have Caledonia as part of our very generous suite of fund managers. I mean, I know in the last 12 months in the fund we're in, I mean, you've truly shot the lights out. I think the return's about a... 117%. I mean, it's it's eye-watering um, and huge congrats. I mean, how do you manage the emotional highs and also obviously the lows with that investment philosophy? Because obviously there's highs and lows and we've seen that ourselves here. Oh, yeah. No, no, I mean, it can be very hard. I mean, volatility, you know, it, take, it takes a strong stomach to, to have that sort of level of volatility. <laughs> it really does. And it's the time is just sort of really, you know, wander around thinking, what have we done? But um, you've got to have the, you know, I suppose the conviction, obviously, that and keep analysing the things you're already in and say, have we missed something? Is it just the market that's not getting it here? Is it just is are we wrong? Whatever, and keep um, analysing it. And and our analysts um, and 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 um, uh, well, investment chief investment officers, which is both Will Vickers and um, and Mike Massara, spend. You can't, I mean, they literally are twenty four seven checking on this stuff, um, trying to work out if we're if this is. And you check it even more so. Well, both ways. When markets go up, you check. When markets go down, you check. You know, we say markets. I mean, markets in most stocks. You're always looking at what you've missed and what you haven't done. But we have the majority. Each all of us have the majority of our own money in the fund. Um, which, while that's a bit scary, it's also actually quite reassuring and comforting too, in a funny sort of way. Not just for the other investors, but also for us because it means that um, you know we've got confidence or our conviction that we're going to do this anyway. Um, it's not like you know a, an option. And so we really will work hard at it, but it, but yeah, there's, there's no no way about it. When when you have um, you know terribly terribly tough um, um, you know, conditions and markets and volatility there, you do you do get a bit a bit you know a bit of a hollow pit in the stomach. <laughs> but the last the last eight years or so, when we started uh, being allowed to short, you know changed our model to be allowed to short as well, that's given us a bit of um, flexibility on those bad markets too. So we do it does does reduce our, our volatility quite a bit. And look, on another note, I, I understand you're, you know, reasonably close to the likes of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. And of course, these guys are, you know, the true legends in the world of investing. I mean, can you tell us a bit about your relationship with, say, Charlie? And I believe succession planning is an interesting topic here. With Munger and Buffett, they were very great influences on both Ian and I right at the very start. We'd, we'd read a bit of stuff about them many, many years before we even started Caledonia, when we were back at Prue Bash days. But then during um, our early days in Caledonia, we one of my great friends was I was at University of Cambridge with, and he he was a an investor and a fund manager, um, an investor with 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 Buffett, and he um, said to us, to Ian and I, look, you really should come to this strange meeting in Omaha <laughs> that we had. That, 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 this is the AGM. This was back in about 1995, yeah. and he said because these guys, these guys are these guys are old, it won't last long. You should come. <laughs> you know, so this is 1995, right? right. So we so we went over there. We started going to this meeting in 1995, and it was a revelation. It was extraordinary. It was like, you know, you were drinking the Kool Aid. It was an absolute cult. This whole thing, and we sort of bought into it pretty quickly. It was, you know, it was actually fascinating as well. And and we picked up so much in in terms of what did inform our you know style, if you want to call that, of investing. And um, and then just through a couple of um, other people we knew, we ended up getting um, very close to a, a great friend, an, an older gentleman called Otis Booth, and he turned out he was Charlie Munger's best friend. Mm-hmm. And so he then sort of introduced into that circle as well. And so before you knew it, we were sort of unveiled into that that area. And and Charlie's been uh, an incredibly um, uh, great, um, you know, say connection if you like for me for all that time ever since. But but just after that, ninety five in, in the year two thousand, um, Ian Ian Darling, my my partner, 
um, who'd always wanted to make films, to be honest. And, um, and he said, we should make a film. We said it in 99. He said, we should make a film about this meeting. over It's such a, a wacky, um, you know, sort of weekend, if you like, with all these sort of cult people following the cult. So I said, okay, let's do it. So the next year we went back in 2000. <laughs> And made, and made this film, which we called Woodstock for mm. Capitalists. And funnily enough, just coincidentally, last night or yesterday, November the 10th, was the 20th anniversary of our first screening of that film. So we so we watched it again last night. We watched it again last night, yeah, Ian and I, and right. a couple of friends. And it was, you know, and it's um, it hasn't aged that well, I have to say. But anyway, but it was, no, it was, it was still great. And uh, this film um, was really, a, it was like, like a road film. It was about the old... Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, you know, the road to Mandalay or something. This was like Ian and Mark on the road to Omaha, you know, to see Warren and Charlie. And it was, you know, it was, you know, it was a bit self-indulgent in some ways, but it was it was a lot of fun and um, we made this film. So, and actually, as an aside, that's what really set Ian then on the path to what he is now, which is one of Australia's great documentary filmmakers and philanthropists um, as a result of that. We can talk about that later. But but the the um, the film, um, uh, well, the film, I suppose, it really did you know, get us to really think more about the whole style of investing for these people. And I've remained very, you know, very close to Charlie. In fact, I spoke to him last night. I speak to him every week, every Tuesday, Tuesday night. I have a, a Zoom call with Charlie and he's, 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 not, he's 96, which is phenomenal and, and still as sharp as attack. is great. So I had a good chat to him last night and about various things, getting his take on the election and stuff like that. But they're, they're, they're terrific, terrific people. And we're very, very lucky to have, have a relationship there. Well, look, we might change tact a, a little bit now. Um, obviously, we've been covering quite a bit on the investing side, but I, I'd like to talk a bit about your passion for the art world um, in particular. I know I know you're a hardcore art collector. In fact, I'd, I'd love to see the collection at some time, and I'm guessing I know you'd have one of the best privately owned art collections. I mean, I've, you know, I've seen John Caldors and a few other big collectors. I mean... Who and what has inspired that? And is there an absolute favourite piece in the collection? Yeah, that's 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 that, that question you can never answer. That I mean, any collector will always tell you. Probably, probably the last thing they bought would be their most favourite. You know, no, it's, it's often how yeah. it is because you're sort of enamoured by it. Yeah. That's why you buy it. But, but um, and then you've always got stuff in storage which you need to pull out and remind yourself about it. As I said, my my dad was an historian and and also with literature and things and, and art, the visual arts in particular, but all sort of art really sits at the intersection, you know, of, of a lot of those particular humanities, mm. whether it be literature, history, you know, travel, all that sort of stuff. So I'd always had a sort of a, you know, I'd read a lot about it and then I'd try to do it, you know, when I was about sort of, as you do, you do art classes at school when you're 14 or 15 and I was absolute crap. I was hopeless. And 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 rather, rather than turn me off it, it made me sort of more fascinated as to why, you know, what this was all about. So I used to read even more. I was, I was quite a, a curious child um, in many ways. But um, and so I, I learned a lot about, it, as I said. So you know, even though I couldn't do it, it didn't put me off. It made me sort of appreciate, I suppose, and respect all those that could. And um, and you know, there's such a great line in, in, in art in terms of the line, the historical line. So any any contemporary artist, you will you talk to them, they'll say, "Oh, my great influences are," and they'll go all the way back, you know, to um, to well, it could be to antiquities, really, all the way through. So it's not like everyone sits in a silo. Well, some people do, but most of it is really quite fluid. And so I, I was just fascinated by it all. And so I remember when I got my my very first paycheck, you know, down at, thanks to John Kelvin Jones <laughs> down at Free Base. And I, and I went straight, at the age of 27, yeah. I was by stage, I went straight down to um, to see Bill Nuttall at yeah. Niagara Galleries in Punt yeah. Road in Richmond. And I bought a painting straight away. And uh, I still got it, which is good. And um, and I've been, you know, collecting them ever since, wow. all that sort of time. 
um, and it's been fun. So then when you got to the situation where many years later I had the time and, and dare I say, the resources to um, um, do other, do things in, in the public sector for, for the arts, I was able to, to do that. I was very happy to do that and go on a variety of, um, of boards and, and, and um, uh, you know, sort of committees, if you like, around the world uh, involved there, which has been a great and it's been a fabulous a fabulous interest mm. to have. And look, very recently, Mark, I mean, you've, you know, I've got a background obviously in this space, but you've done an extraordinary job. And I know that word can be overused, but it's not in this case because you've been chairman of the Capital Committee for the Modern Project at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and you've been vice president of the Board of Trustees of the Art Gallery and a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales Foundation, both for nine years. So it's a very significant term. I mean, you spearheaded that campaign that raised over, I think it's $115 million for Modern. Now that's... Yeah, as we know, an eagerly awaited and much needed extension to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And I know with my background in the arts how awesome that result is. I mean, it's actually by far the most successful campaign in the arts in Australia. And for that matter, um, across any sectors, I mean, I think probably if you look at the university sector with Sydney and Melbourne Uni, they've raised more, but there wouldn't be too many other parts of the non-profit sector that have gone close to that. Um, how did you manage to actually lead that campaign and juggle your day job of being in the business of creating wealth versus giving back to the community? And I gather you've, you hadn't probably done anything quite like that before. I mean, any, any reflections on having done the role? And there's not too many people I know in Australia who could have pulled that off that feat yeah, well, it really, it really helps having a, a great project, dare I say, to to because you can actually speak to it quite convincingly. It doesn't doesn't take much to convince people, particularly if they've already they love the arts and love the idea of of the art and the and the art here in New South Wales is is a lovable place, dare I say. It. Whenever you go in there, people actually feel good. You know, it's 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 not a mm. not an austere place at all. It's it's very very friendly and very welcoming, and people do like going there. But um, so so straight away, you're you're not asking people to. You know, to commit to something that they don't already believe is a, is a good thing. That, that helps a lot. That really does. And then really, when it's all said and done, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a figurehead in this position. The real work, the, the nuts and bolts is done by by the great sort of team you've got around you who are the you know, the development team at the Art Gallery in New South Wales, and they're a fabulous group, um, you know, really good. But And this, this look, there's time-honoured sort of methods when you're raising money like that. You sort of start, it's like a pyramid structure. You, know, you start with the, the amount you, you work on, the amount you're trying to get to, and you try and get... Uh, maybe twenty five percent of that total amount in one gift, and then you look at the next level on the pyramid, and you try and get, you know, three gifts of you know that amount again, or four. You know, I mean, that add up to that, and you you do it narrow it down all the way up up the up the ladder, and you just target it properly, and you you convince or convince you try and match up what you're offering, whether it be a you know the naming rights to a particular area that has resonance to the people you're going for. There's all those little things which are sort of in the handbook of philanthropy are pretty sort of well. Or fundraising are well sort of covered, but um, in this situation, as I said, I think it was really just because we had such a, a great um, uh, offering, if you like, or something. Everyone didn't need too much convincing; they were very keen to see it see it occur. Um, because you know, this 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 town is a, a an art loving town. There's no doubt. It's maybe doesn't have the history in that area as Melbourne, but it's certainly rapidly getting there, as it is in philanthropy generally. Um, again, Melbourne has, has probably led that way, or certainly led that way for for a lot longer, given their economic history, you know, of the last century particularly. Um, but, no, Sydney's been terrific now and there's a lot more philanthropic, um, you know, not just people but sort of ideas, um, very innovative ideas that are emanating out of here. And, you know, I should give a, you know, a great shout-out there to um, 
to Ian Darling again, you know, as I said, who really is one of the country's great philanthropists. And, and he was very much responsible with back with our Caledonia hat on um, many years ago in saying that we needed to set up our own foundation internally, which was which we rather imaginatively called the Caledonia Foundation, I don't know why. And that was <laughs> um, and that was Ian and I and Will and our and our wives, um, you know, me and Jane and Louise. And and we we set the Caledonia Foundation. We we're one of the very first PAFs to yeah. um, come into existence and and um and, and worked on that and and that's been a great success in many ways um um not just for us personally i'm saying in terms of what it's supported and thinking of new ideas and ways to to um express that philanthropy so you would know well i think lou about the um you know ian's efforts or his his um leadership role in the you know the area of film um, or documentary because doc documentaries have or can have an enormous effect documentaries with social with a social message can have an enormous effect on what they do and everyone always remembers the you know the El Gore um you know inconvenient truth which was certainly didn't did like it or hate it doesn't matter it did an enormous amount of of good in terms of um, highlighting you know climate change and there's so many others that have done uh, a lot of um great work Ian's last film which was which was the um which we of course the Caledonia Foundation backed which was the um final quarter which was about obviously Adam mm. and racism which was a uh, has had an enormous mm. you know again it doesn't matter if people like or hate it but it, it really gets people talking and that's been incredibly um, good, as has the Good Pitch Initiative, which was um, which we did at the Opera House for three years in a row, and 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 helped to fund an enormous amount of um, films there. But the the arts, uh, Ian also, as I said, has been heavily involved in the arts, more the visual. Sorry, he's more on the performing arts. I've been in the visual arts, but it's it's nice to be in the position to be able to, to help when you can. I know you're also passionate about sport. I mean, I too oh, yeah. have that, oh, yeah. that double passion of arts and sport and and with you I gather it's particularly cricket and AFL and I also know that you're the number one ticket oh, and golf and golf, oh, golf too. Well. okay I didn't know yeah, that, but you're, the, you're certainly the number one ticket holder of, of Richmond Football Club in Melbourne yeah. and of course you must be over the moon after the latest premiership win in this what you call a crazy year um, for all sport including AFL but what's your is there a best sports moment and why I know that's a hard question but there's got to be one that stands out yeah i mean i think for, for a prolonged period which wasn't really a prolonged period of um of of great memories i suppose that you know the 2000 olympics was unbelievable here mm. just in terms of being part of you know part of in a very peripheral sense as a mm. as a spectator but you know the not only this the environment was fabulous and went to as many sports as i could in that whole period that was that was superb but you're right from an individual basis or at least a personal level you know the, the recent premierships at richmond have been been terrific last year um uh, I was lucky enough to be you know, on, out on the field with the players, you know, as they, as they, you know, with them celebrating as they getting their medals and all that sort of stuff in, in a hundred thousand MCG crowds. That was a lot of fun. You can imagine that being out in the middle. Um, <laughs> did, I did enjoy that. Um, this year was obviously a bit more problematic, not being able to, to go to Brisbane. Mm. Strange as that might seem, but um, anyway. Uh, and uh, although the week before we played the preliminary final at Adelaide, so I, I was able to go to that, uh. which was great. But, but um, no, it's it's been it's been enormous fun, and you know the AFL. It's a very well run organisation. Individually, most of the clubs, not all of them, but most of them are run very well as well. Richmond, fortunately, is run extremely well. Yeah. And and so um, yeah. But there's a lot less. You know, I mean, there's been millions of books written about the sort of the metaphors, you know, and the connections between sport and life, and sport and business, and all this sort of stuff like that. But a lot of them are pretty true in terms of having a you know, the teamwork and the happiness that, that, that it generates and all this sort of stuff. And that's the good side. The bad side's the same, where you get mm. fraud and corruption and uh, yeah. you know, and cheating and all that sort of thing as well. So, yeah. But no, I, I do think it's fabulous. Yeah. And, um, 
and, and I love the fact that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm like yourself, that you can actually can spread spread your interests across a variety of areas that are not being too pigeonholed in one area. Mm. Well, life's never dull if you can do that and you're lucky enough to no. do it, so I'm sure you are there. But, look, I'd imagine um, you've got an incredible memory too for stats and numbers. Now, I'm, I'm ah, obviously yeah. in business, but, but I reckon yeah. in sport as well, just while we're on that topic. I mean, is there a particular yeah. stat worth sharing that blows you away? Well, there's a couple. Um, you know, one, one, one that's always fascinating, and his name just came up the other day. We were talking about something I was talking about it, but talking about the great Herb Elliott. You know who, um, yeah. who uh, um, everyone probably remembers won the 1500 meters mm. gold medal Olympics in 1960 in Rome and retired not that long after, having never been beaten in competition oh, yeah. over a 1500 meters or a mile. Mm. And incredibly, that that mm. time he ran in the 1960 um, Olympics would have won all but I think three Olympic gold medals since. You know, which is wow. extraordinary at the time. I think how far ahead he was. But when it comes to stats and, and sort of out ridiculous performances. There's one that just stands so far ahead of everyone else, probably globally, although other people outside Australia, outside the cricket world probably don't really know much about it, but that's Bradman. Bradman's average, Bradman's average over 80 test innings to average just under 100 is just nothing like that. And I think, I think, I don't know what you think, but I think batting, especially in test cricket, but batting is the hardest thing in sport. You get one chance at it. And, and you don't get a second chance, and it might even be your fault. You might get run out. You might get a dodgy LB or something, and and you're gone. You don't get you know even in baseball you get three strikes at it. Even the bowler in cricket bowls a bad ball. I'll have another go. You know, I mean everyone else gets a second go, but being a batsman in cricket is so hard. And this guy, this guy averages just under a hundred over 80, 80 innings. It's just it's just you can't even think about it. You know, so. That's so far ahead of the world. Yeah, no, off the charts, totally yeah, off the charts. Yeah. All right, well, look, um, lastly, I mean, I can't finish without getting your views on, of course, two all-consuming topics this year. I mean, firstly, mm. the US election result and what that means for Australia and the world. I know this that's a big question. And then secondly, COVID and its impact, I mean, especially with your medical background. I mean, yeah. over to you for some final thoughts on, on these two top-of-mind uh, topics. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the election, it's, it's, it's sort of very hard, obviously, still to know exactly how that how that does, well, say, plays out. We know it plays out. Obviously, Biden has now got in. And I think it looks like, with a bit of luck, if Georgia um, does go to the Republicans on the Senate side, um, which, again, it's up in the air. We won't know that for a while, a fair while yet. But if it does, then I think that's probably the best possible outcome for, for all of us. You know, we get rid of get rid of Trump, um, but, but there's still a balanced, um, you know, House of Review, if you like, being the Senate. So so it can't be sort of all one way. Uh, in terms of what it means for Australia, well, I mean, I think our biggest you know, global concern is still China, you know, in terms of our relation with China. And that was massively deteriorating, obviously, under Trump as there. So you'd like to think that, that, um, that Biden would be far more conciliatory in that area to China, which hopefully will, will follow through to us, that we can do that as well. So that would be the biggest, biggest thing to watch um, there. Uh, in terms of the the COVID thing. I mean, look, I, I just like logic. <laughs> I'm a reasonably logical person and it really annoys me when I see illogical decisions being made in things. And and look, it was very hard at the start, back in, in February, March, when you weren't really quite sure what you're dealing with. And so naturally, a lot of different um, um, restrictions and, and other um, things were put in place. But it became pretty rapidly clear with all the all the numbers that were going on around there, what worked and what didn't work. And, and I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, so I say illogical decisions made in Australia in the last 
last few months as exemplified by these border closures, which have just been ridiculous. And, well, it is. And, and, and really, I mean, what annoys me there, and certainly this is borne out, I'm sure you've done it too, if you talk to a lot of uh, professors, as I do, in the medical world, and they, they shake their heads saying about the, the medical um, um, you know, the medical outcomes that are, aren't being addressed in terms of, of looking at the, the outcomes in its entirety as opposed to just looking at, at the COVID situation. And it's very hard to get the exact figures, but it looks pretty pretty clear that the health outcomes of the community in, in, in total haven't been helped by a lot of these these, these um, restrictions. So um, you'd like to see there be some changes there, but people are very intransigent and that people do things for political reasons. And that's really, that's quite aggravating. And you're seeing that as a separate these with the different borders. But um, look, it is what it is. I, I've got great faith and great hope in the, um, in the vaccines. I think the vaccines, just to digress for a second, you do find that after a crisis of any sort, you do, uh, crises are usually always um, succeeded, if you like, by periods of great innovation. This happens around the world, or has done for centuries. And and often the, the innovation occurs in things that cause the crisis. So if you go back to, you know, the Second World War, if you like, and when any of the World Wars really, but certainly the Second World War, straight after that with the, you know, with the world in, in ruins, the innovation was enormous that occurred. And, and to, you know, to be fair, as I said, some of that innovation was in weapon research. You know, how do we make a better bomb? Because we don't have last time. But actually then led on, that innovation led to the, you know, really the, the aerospace industry, um, all our all our you know, great efforts in, into into, um, into into space, if you like, all came about because that level of innovation that occurred after that. If you think about the financial financial crisis, the GFC, um, the innovation that occurred straight away was, that was a financial crisis. How do we address that? And so... You had these um, advances in, in things like, you know, um, well, blockchain and uh, neobanks and a whole bunch of other different ways, maybe even crypto, as you know, I say, but to try and try and see that we won't have that same effect again. And this time, this has been a health crisis. So the level of innovation that's occurred in health generally is is, is been you know, unparalleled, mainly because, and certainly if you look at, you know, Operation Warp Speed, as they're calling it, which was the, the race to find some, uh, to improve vac vaccines for this, this, um, this particular virus. That's accelerated at a pace never been seen before, mm. and not just because they they they, they took away or not took away, but they lowered the you know the sort of the, the bars and made the, the time period a lot quicker to get these things to come to fruition, and also encouraged different styles of, of vaccine technology. There's a there was a much sort of um, um, theorised um, style of the mRNA technique, which is a messenger RNA method of producing a vaccine, which had been thought about for years, but no one had been brave enough to have a go at it given the cost and the time. But the FDA basically and the government basically said, no, no, go ahead. And so one of the companies, Moderna, which is producing um, a vaccine, which is done on that method. And so even if that turns out to be a bit of a me too, it, it's also now created a whole platform for other vaccines that can be done using the mRNA method, which is great. And 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 all, all these vaccines, uh, some of them are very different in terms of the vector or, or the carrier that they use to, to deliver the vaccine. Um, but they are all um, look like they're producing you know, the level of antibody protection that you need, um, which is great. And, and vaccines typically don't have uh, a lot of side effects because they're very specific to a virus. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful and very um, confident that, that they'll, they'll all be you know, ready to go pretty soon. And, and I think the, the Pfizer announcement a couple of days ago was, mm. was a great start in that yeah. respect. Yeah. Although it, yeah, that, that particular one has a couple of, I won't say weaknesses, but a couple of issues which are specific, which are, are tougher in the sense it has to be stored at minus seventy degrees, which makes it pretty tough um, to um, to transport, or you know, so it needs to be sort of the point of production, and also it, it needs a booster, which is not a big deal. A lot of a lot of vaccines need a booster, 
you know, a month later. Mm. But some of the other vaccines don't need that. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which um, uh, which is done with, with with Oxford University, which Australia has bought or committed to buying a stack of, and CSL will make it. It um, it can be stored at I think it's you know, minus four to plus seven or eight degrees. So really, in any sort of fridge at a GP's um, mm. practice, which is good. Yeah, and it, it it only needs I think it doesn't need a booster. So it's a single shot. Yeah. So it's a, it's probably more as is the Johnson Johnson like single shot too. So. There's, no, there's a lot of lot of hope there in the in the vaccine area. Well, look, Mark. You know, thanks a million for for joining me today. Um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I know you don't do this sort of thing very often, so I really appreciate you uh, sharing the journey and, and obviously the different avenues and interests and expertise you've got has been fascinating. So uh, I just can't thank you enough. Looking forward to the ninth episode of Conversations with Future Generation, our last episode for the year, which will be released in December. In fact, I'm interviewing your knowing well, David Paradise uh, from oh, good. Paradise Investment Management, who's a uh, journey as well. And um, thank you for listening. And thanks again, Mark, for joining me. Pleasure. I wasn't too boring. <laughs>